it seems like with handmade knives, they really have a soul to them and kind of a personality. And the imperfections are kind of the beauty of it. And you can learn to appreciate that more. And uh, just knowing too that it was, it was labored over for hours for a specific purpose, I really do think it makes you appreciate it a lot more. What's happening, everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021, and welcome to Season 2 of Along the Keel, a podcast dedicated to the brands that are being built outside. My name is Captain Zach, and as we ring in the new year, we're ringing in a new episode every week, dropping on Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern. And as we kick off the new year, we're going to kick it off with our good friend Bryn Russell, the founder, creator, and head craftsman of Pelagos a spear gun and knife building company based out of Oklahoma. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, Oklahoma is a landlocked state. And that's why this story gets a whole lot better as to how Pelagos came to be, why he decided to build spear guns. And even despite his young age, Bryn is creating some amazing pieces of art that are usable. And I can promise you and assure you that they are durable, sharp, and just incredible tools. So I hope you stick around for this great episode of the podcast. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us a review. Those are super important, especially if you're listening to on Apple Podcasts. And check us out on social media. Give us a follow. Catch up with some content. And as always, stick around towards the end. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, episode number 46 of Along the Keel. Yeah. So when did you start it? Was it your freshman year? You said uh, I started making it probably freshman year, and then only started selling okay. in 2019. So junior year. Oh, all right. Yep. Yep. So now, was there like a? Did you just start messing around in your garage? Because I mean, not every kid your age has you know access to knife making materials, yeah. right? So, yeah. and, and then to think that all of a sudden you're in Oklahoma and you're going to make a spear fishing company. I mean, you got to admit that doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a big departure. Um, yeah, but it just kind of sure. worked out like that. I was starting on the floor of my garage, sitting on a water jug, um, just with mm-hmm. minimal tools and made something kind of cool and sold it to a friend of mine. And uh, from there, just bought nicer and nicer stuff to where I'm at now. Yep. Yeah. Right. So were you, I mean, starting out, right? You're sitting on that water jug. You're thinking, all right, well, what, what are the first steps of creating a knife? So what, what is your process when it comes to creating a knife? Yeah. Um, the main thing is the design. I just draw out all the different mm-hmm. elements and plan out the steel and the different handle materials to get it just perfect for its use. Um, yep. And then start with the rough shaping, either forge it out or just cut it out if I'm doing stock removal. And that way I have a good basic shape. I can get it measured to the person's hand. Um, then I go to grinding. Oh, wow. So you will you actually take like a, um, like a mold of their hand? Yeah. Or really? If they're somewhere else, I can just measure it on a ruler. But uh, I'm mm-hmm. trying to get it fit up as custom as I can get it. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. So you start with this blade. Are you getting, where are you getting your materials? Usually I order them online. Um, you can find some stuff just around like old leaf springs and such. But once you start mm-hmm. working with better steel, um, you have to start ordering it in bulk. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you kind of consider yourself an artist, at, you know, in, in, in ways, are you more like a craftsman or because a lot of the stuff you make, Bryn, I mean, it is unbelievable. I mean, the craftsmanship, the using the Damascus steel and just the way it all looks. And, you know, I kind of, I, I'm not going to say that I'm a knife guy by any, by any means, but I do appreciate, you know, like a really just well-designed, well-produced knife. And you're designing these all out of your head. I mean, you're not going off of like a, like a template or anything, right? I mean, you're, you're way beyond that. You're kind (laughs) of going off and doing your own thing, which is super cool. So, you know, you're in high school, you're starting to create these knives, you come out with a process. At what point was this something that you were like, okay, maybe I can, I can sell these things and make what would become Pelagos. Like Mm kind of give me the backstory as to how this all started. Yeah. It was probably too early that I started thinking that, Um, (laughs) but it was like, I'm never too early to make money. Right. (laughs) That was my first thought after making one or two knives was like, who can I sell this to, to keep doing it? Right. Um, and so I sold one or two little pieces of junk to my friends 
Um, mm-hmm. I never really thought it'd be much, but on down the line, it started becoming my stuff started being able to compete with some of the other people making knives who'd been doing it for a lot mm-hmm. longer. And at that point, I started thinking, like, what if I started actually distributing these? Um, right. And so it kind of just worked out like that. And now um, that's all I do is sell stuff. I, I don't have time to do any right. personal stuff anymore. <laughs> just making knives and going to school. Yeah. <laughs> so now going to school, are you kind of like the knife guy in, in, throughout, throughout the school? Kind of. Um, yeah. I try and kind of fly under the radar. A lot of people don't know <laughs> that about me. Yeah. All right. Um, Why is that? I don't know. I like to keep to myself as much as I can. Okay. I don't really like the spotlight. And yep. I think it helps too if I can just kind of mind my own business without getting all the attention. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I can understand that. And I can definitely relate. I mean, a lot of things that I did when I was, you know, younger, it's like, you know, a lot of people don't know this and I'll tell you, but, uh, and now everyone's going to know. <laughs> but um, when I was in, when I was young, shit, I think I was like, 10 years old, I started raising crickets really? and, um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a weird thing to do. Right. And I would have the, cause I had, uh, lizards. So I was thinking to myself, well, I have all these lizards and, you know, I would go to Petco and I keep buying crickets and you know, they were, they weren't expensive, but they weren't cheap. So I thought to myself, well, how can I, I'll start breeding them and I'll start packaging them up and selling them. So I'd literally go around the neighborhood, ride my bike and sell people crickets. So it's kind of really? that same, like, wow. yeah, it was, really really weird yeah. it's ahoy it didn't last very long <laughs> but uh <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's kind of that same like entrepreneurial spirit and to see someone that's you know you know mm-hmm. your age and, and i'm not much older than you that's going ahead and doing that under the radar it's super cool man that's it's awesome so at what point did you start to say like hey you're welcome of course um like when did this become brin making knives and flying under the radar, which I love, to <laughs> Bryn creating Pelagos and then all of a sudden developing a, you know, a, an actual brand and company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a long time where I was just trying to progress my skills to the point where I'd feel comfortable selling. Um, mm-hmm. And then there just kind of came a day where I decided to go for it. And with the help of uh, some friends and family, I just kind of launched the website and put it out yep. there and it was definitely a rocky start but uh i got one or two sales and that gave me confidence to keep going yeah what was uh like the the banning the beginning steps for you though i mean mm-hmm. like you know creating a website going through the social like creating a social media account doing the whole thing like you, you have these knives and you're like all right well you know i'm in oklahoma I want to kind of appeal to, to like, you know, your coastal, the coastline and and spear fishermen. There's gotta be some sort of process there where you were like, all right, I got to figure this out, you know, like, and, and, and getting that first couple sales was like, oh man, like I can actually do this. This is pretty cool. You know, what did, what did that look like for you? Like in its infancy stage? Yeah, it, it was really one knife at a time. Um, I wish I'd planned it out more, but it really was just me thinking like, this is kind of cool. Maybe I can sell it. And Mm -hmm. I post on the website, which at the start looked terrible. And the Instagram was, Mm -hmm. you know, barely a platform. Um, But I posted on there and see what feedback I would get and kind of move on from there. Uh, With with the help of my friend Blake, we started trying to target some more like specific clientele. Uh, We sent a spear gun to Nick Nick Watkins at Spear Channel and got him to kind of shout us out. And uh, really just took it one step at a time, made a lot of mistakes, but uh, pretty quickly learned what was good and what was not good. Right, right. Now, you know, you're in, I keep on saying you're in Oklahoma, right? <laughs> yeah. Middle of nowhere. And yeah. I've been to Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a really cool state. You know, a lot, not a lot of people um, appreciate the United States, you know, the Midwest, especially as, you know, as I think they should, Mm -hmm. I personally have spent a lot of time in South Dakota, which is, you know, somewhat right near you. So, and it's a beautiful place, but you know, it's very rugged. It's rural. You got the back country, you know, some mountains Mm -hmm. like the black Hills and whatnot. Um, but there's no ocean there, you know, there's no, There's no, uh, there's no pelagic fish or tunas or, you know, whatnot swimming around in Oklahoma. So why, why spearfishing? Yeah. Um, I, when I was about 13, 
I took a trip to Hawaii and, um, oh, Hawaii. yeah. What Island? Uh, Maui. Okay. Went to Maui and, uh, I was bored on the trip and I wanted something to do. And so I decided I try out spearfishing. Um, mm-hmm. and so in preparation for the trip, I'd built this, um, tiny little plank of a gun and had some big rubber bands <laughs> on it and it looked terrible, but it still shot. And so I yeah. took it out and, uh, I'd read up on all the local rules and regulations and somehow managed yep. to get a couple fish. And, uh, really? Yeah. Do you remember what kind of fish? I think it was little goat fish and maybe like a black tail okay. snapper. Um, yep. just something to kind of pique my interest. And so after getting that taste of it, you know, it didn't matter that I was in Oklahoma. That was kind of like right. what I wanted to do. Um, and I, did you have any trouble getting the spear gun on the plane? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had to, I had to make a little box for it and it got flagged so many times. I got searched over and over <laughs> trying to get it there. Yeah, I bet. Um, but somehow it made it there and back and, uh, even, walking down through the hotel with spear gun poking out of my bag, got a lot of questions and funny looks. Um, but I managed to get down there just fine and it worked. And then I was hooked. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, when you, you know, ventured out into the ocean, you know, kind of like going out into the depths, had you, I mean, living in Oklahoma, there's no water. So was this like a totally new experience for you? like a hundred percent out of the gate yeah. or have you been in hung out by the coastline before? I'd been around the coast a little bit. Um, cause I've got a lot of family in Oregon, but I'd never really okay. tried free diving and yep. it was a different world. Um, yeah. it, it really did blow my mind and scared me a lot too. I bet. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But it, it got me hooked really quick. It was one of those things where it freaked me out, but I couldn't stop doing it. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, I, I've lived in Hawaii. I've kind of grown up around the coastline my whole life. And, you know, I think um, in any, you know, growing up at the coastline and then moving to Hawaii and kind of going swimming and doing some free diving and and, uh, and just working on the water, the first time you go into the, the Hawaiian waters, it kind of freaks you out. Yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. visibility is insane. So you just, you can see for hundreds of feet underwater mm-hmm. and yet you're just kind of immersed in this, an amazing ecosystem that is none, like none other, you know, around anywhere in the United States. So why, why do you think you were kind of like, you know, hesitant yet drawn to it? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It, it really is an alien world down there mm-hmm. and getting to go down and be sitting on the bottom, kind of waiting and feeling comfortable. Um, in a place where humans aren't really supposed to be. There's just something alluring about that. And um, at the time, I could barely hold my breath and dive. So it, I, I panicked every time I got down. But I still had this drive to just go a little bit deeper or stay down a little bit longer to see what was down mm-hmm. there. And I still feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that goes away. I mean... Every time I go out on the water, whether it be on a boat or swimming or whatnot, there's always that like, well, what's, what's past mm-hmm. the next rock or what's, yeah. you know, what's, what's around that corner. And you just, you just find yourself, you know, going and going and sometimes well, maybe a little bit too much, yeah. you know, you're like, oh crap, yeah. now I'm three hours deep and I got to come all the way <laughs> back, you know? And, um, but yeah, the ocean seems to do that and I can totally relate. So you said that you have family in Oregon. Whereabouts in Oregon are they? Uh, most of them are in Portland. Okay. All right. That's a cool city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been to Portland. I know it's been a little bit crazy these past few, <laughs> you know, few months, but you know, it's beautiful nonetheless. It's like one of those cities that you can kind of, you can go get the city experience and then you can go escape mm-hmm. like within 20 minutes and go out yeah. into a hike or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. There's all sorts of yeah, different so, activities just right around the city. Oh, tons of them. Yeah, it's a gorgeous spot. And I think I went, when I went there, I think we went to a, on a, some hike next to like a waterfall or something. Yeah. I don't know. It was probably, I think there's a pretty big famous waterfall there, right? Horsetail Falls? With like a bridge. Yeah. Horsetail Falls. There you go. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool spot. Yeah. Kind of touristy, but kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's nothing like the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. I mean, I recently did a trip from Rhode Island to, uh, where Cape Flattery, Washington. Oh, okay. And, 
the have you ever been there uh i've been to washington up to washington but not cape flattery. okay mm-hmm. cape flattery well it's probably a spear fisherman's like delight because the the, the rock faces they come right into the water and mm-hmm. you know i didn't have any of my gear then but um you could just tell like mm-hmm. the kelp just everything it was unbelievable um so this allurement to the ocean right and this want to kind of push yourself going forward you know further and further i'm 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 willing to bet kind of carries over into your knife making yeah right and it kind of carries over into your spearfishing uh your your spear gun you know creation so at where does where do the lines kind of intersect you know there was a guy that um that i had on the show he he had a really cool quote i'm going to share it with you he's david dennis he said like you know all of your interests it's the intersection and i'm gonna i'm gonna botch this but (laughs) it's the intersection of all of your interests that really makes someone successful you know And, and i think that's so true and it seems like you've kind of found your niche and like you you love the ocean you love the outdoors and you love crafting and creating. So now you're creating what is now Pelagos, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that intersection occurs for you? And then how does that kind of continue to push you down the road and continue to develop these knives and spear guns? Yeah, good question. I think that it's really the culmination of everything I love because I get the hands-on um, craftsman side of it where I get to actually build the stuff and I can take it directly out and test it and see what I need to work on um, and do my other main hobby. And just like the call to go a little bit deeper, same with knives and spear guns, where I always want to push myself a little bit better and a little bit out mm-hmm. of the comfort zone. And it seems like whenever I make something new, I'm only happy with it for about a week. And then I have to start <laughs> over on a new one. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've changed the website. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, something's never just perfect. I always got to make a new one. Um, And so it's kind of that drive that has led me to progress through the skill and progress with the diving too. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And that's kind of the cool part is like you're making these tools that you can then go directly use and test out and be like, Mm -hmm. hey, like I use this, you should use it. And I made it so it's even it's even better. So Mm -hmm. um what does that progression look like? Because I've never made a knife, you know, mm-hmm. I think knives are awesome, but I have no idea where to start. So like, what is your process? So you get, you got the steel, mm-hmm. you got some wood for the handle, I'm assuming. And then where do you kind of go from there? Yeah, there's a lot of different directions depending on what you want to do. Um, but they're the same basic steps for everything. Um, mm-hmm. You start with just the shaping and the grinding, the bevels and everything. And then once you've got it all perfect how you want it you go to the heat treat and that's really where you learn a lot of lessons and where things go wrong um mm-hmm. it's kind of the turning point of the knife where it it determines whether or not it's going to snap immediately or whether it's going to last a lifetime um how many times have you snapped the knife <laughs> too many at least a dozen too many yeah. <laughs> and can you reuse that steel or is it just not it's really gone, so. it's gone yeah 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 and so huh. it it's kind of a good metaphor just cause it's like the moment where all the pressure's on and it's going to go right or it's all going to go wrong. Um, and that'll right. determine later on, you know, when I'm skinning something or going to shoot a fish, whether or not it works or I lose it. Right. No, that's a, that is a, a very good metaphor for, you know, anything, whether it be, you know, creating your own business, which you have, and then, you know, just a metaphor for life. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how, you learn so much and how the environment kind of presents those metaphors to us, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it, you know? So have you gotten, what's kind of been the reaction towards your knives? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. you creating these knives in, in, in Oklahoma, and now you got to kind of spread it around and you're like, all right, well, there's no spear fishermen here. So how do I get them out? Right. I mean, obviously you have friends and family in Oregon, which, based on your, your Instagram, you know, I always see, you know, this, this coastline, the Pacific Northwest, the very, you know, the rugged, the gritty, you know, the, the, I don't even know what you'd say. It's there's, there's something special about the people in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they're, they're, they're not like any other people. I like to say that the Pacific Northwest is new England on steroids yeah. in terms of yeah. like the, the environment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, what's been your, what's been your way of getting the word out? Yeah, it, it's different with knives and spear guns. Cause there's a lot of people around here that like knives. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of the easier side just cause they'll sell themselves, but the spear guns are tough. Most people around here think that a spear gun is just like a rifle with a spear in the barrel. <laughs> yeah. Go kill a deer with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So getting the word out about spear guns, um, it's difficult. We got to try and target people that are on the coast and send out guns out there just so people can try them out and see how they feel about them mm-hmm. kind of spread the word. Um, but the nice thing is spear fishermen are kind of crazy when it comes to wooden guns. Um, yep. they like to geek out over them and it's not hard to get attention from it. Right. So right. anytime I go somewhere new, I'll take one with me and show it around. Sometimes leave it there just to let people try it out. And over time, that's kind of gotten the word out where we've got a good presence now. Right. Yeah. That kind of boots on the ground approach, which mm-hmm. it, in, I think in anything works the best, mm-hmm. you know, because at the end of the day, it's a people, it's a, it's a person to person thing, mm-hmm. right? You know, spear fishing is a very, um, how would you say it? It's a very, uh, primitive, you know, way of going about, you know, hunting and fishing. You know, it's this, mm-hmm. it's this very primal way of doing something, you know, yeah, and, and in a way, you know, you making a knife is very yeah. primal too. You, you know, you're, you're etching this, this tool out of something that came out of the earth. I mean, you gotta, you gotta admit that's pretty cool and you must take a lot of pride <laughs> in that, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. It, it makes me appreciate it more just because I'm taking something from scratch straight from the earth and using it to feed myself in the end, really. Um, right. And there's something kind of humbling too about just starting with nothing and then going into the fish's environment or whatever it is, leveling with the animal. Um, it seems like there's a sense of respect there. And uh, I, I at least think it's the most like fair way of fishing, ethical. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very humane. I mean, ethically, yeah, you're 100% right. You are on the actually you're probably, they probably have the advantage, you know, mm-hmm. the fish does, Yeah. right. You're coming from <laughs> their world, you know, there's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got, you got a little bit more brain power and some tools, but at the end of the day, like, yeah. you know, you don't breathe underwater, right. Yeah. You got to come up for a breath eventually. Yeah. So and that's just the best feeling too, is being able to start with nothing. And at the end of the day, feed my friends and family. Um, right. After just putting in time and hours into a piece of wood. Yeah. No, absolutely. Do you think, how did you think you kind of gain that respect for the environment? Because that's a very unique outlook. And I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people understand that when they talk to a fisherman or a hunter or someone who's an outdoorsman, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of the times people see the the actual killing of the animal, mm-hmm. which for some people is kind of uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at it from an economic standpoint, right? that's what's really providing us the the reason why we can go do that and go enjoy the national parks and our public lands. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense of respect that I don't think, you know, people that do not hunt or have ever hunted or gone fishing really have for their food. What do you, where, where do you think that comes, comes from, from you? Cause Oklahoma, there's a lot of hunters there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And it, it makes me sad to see people who are so focused on the, the moment of the shot or the adrenaline you get from it and trophy hunting and such it i think it just kind of it taints the beauty of it which is Mm -hmm. just kind of our primal side what we were meant to do which is just go out and harvest an animal um, enough to feed ourselves and our family and i think i kind of recognized that early on because i don't really take any pleasure in killing the fish but i take a lot of pleasure in the hunt and like the process Mm -hmm. and um, getting to train myself to hold my breath longer. That's really where I get the most satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, it's more about the, the process and the journey yeah. than it is the actual reward. I mean, the reward's nice, yeah. right? But I think a lot of people, I mean, for me, I'll go fishing just to go fishing, you mm-hmm. know, and then I'll catch a big fish. I'll be like, yeah, well, let them go make more fish. Yeah. You know, it's just that's how it, you know, that's how we, we have a better resource. But, mm-hmm. um, do you think that that respect for you kind of came, you know, when you were growing, when, when you're growing up, 
as in, you know, your parents kind of taught you that just the, the activities that you were involved in, I got to imagine this was, this just didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I started hunting at a young age and kind of learned to respect what I was going after. And mm-hmm. that was only deep. And when I started working for it more, um, just cause I've, I think I've only used another person's spear gun once. And other than that, it's been only the things I've built. And so with that mindset, it's like, if I want to get a fish, then I need to make something that can harvest it properly. Um, right. Putting in the work to get the fish or the prey or whatever it is. And I think that's a different approach. And I think that it helps you appreciate that reward more when you finally get it. So the process of kind of building your knives, right? You kind of have, you take, I love how you kind of take into consideration the, the, every step of the hunt, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just this, here's a knife. It, it's sharp. It cuts things. There's, there's this real, you know, deep thought process behind why this knife is working, how it performs, what the steel is going to do. And it shows like, I've, you know, I've gone on your website a ton. I've looked at all your knives and each one has a very distinct (laughs) and way of, you know, being designed and and handled and whatnot. But yet they're so they're, they're distinct, but yet they're the, they're very slight changes, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can still tell that's a, that's a Pelagos knife. Like there's a certain style that you've kind of embodied, which I think is really cool. And I think it's kind of hard to do, you know, when you're, when you're starting with a block of steel, Mm -hmm. you know, because that block of steel might perform way differently than any other steel you have, but yet you can kind of come out with the sim, a very similar product that is both, you know, elegant and, and it works beautifully, you know? So when you take those, what are you kind of taking in consideration for the actual creation of this knife? And then how does it relate back to your respect for the environment and for the hunt, you know, at yeah. the end of the day? Cause that's, that's what the tool is made for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good question. The two main factors are steel type and an edge geometry. Um, those will affect whether you've got a big chopper knife that'll, you know, cut through mm-hmm. a tree and be indestructible or whether you have a fillet knife that is thin as a piece of paper, um, but won't ever get dull. Um, right. And so it's important to go through and look at all the chemicals and the elements in the steel first to see how they're going to react during the heat treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to kind of predict which one, what properties of the steel you want to pick and choose for its intended purpose. Um, and when you do that properly, you end up with a dive knife that won't ever rust or a fillet knife that can bend to 90 degrees and retain its shape. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I've always been amazed by how a fillet knife can yeah. just bend mm-hmm. and then whip back into its shape and then hold an edge for freaking ever. Yeah. You know, I bet you go on like 10 charter boats and they'll say, they'll tell you like the last time they actually sharpened that thing, mm-hmm. you know, but it keeps a, it keeps a good blade, you know, no yeah. matter what, why is that? Yeah. It, there's different elements in the steel that can contribute to that. Like I know vanadium and different types of carbides Mm. in the steel can cause that edge to just stay much tougher for longer. Uh, First thing what I do is a sub-zero cryogenic treatment on the knives, um, Mm -hmm. which is just putting the hardened blade into dry ice and acetone for several hours. Really? Yeah. To super. It's a weird mix. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cold. And so it super constricts the molecules. You get a really nice, tight, even grain structure. And if you do it properly, then you should never have to sharpen it, at least not often. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I got to ask, though, man, like, how did you, because you take knife building or knife making, which one would you prefer, knife making or knife building? (laughs) Either one. (laughs) Either one? All right. You take your craftsmanship to a whole nother level. I mean, you're talking about molecules, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about the the chemicals makeup of these knives. Whereas, you know, as, for me, I would just be like, yeah, it's a block of steel. I sharpened it one day and I slapped the handle on yeah. it. It looks good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're going to a whole nother level and I really appreciate that. And I want to, you know, how did you come to learn how to even create a knife? Mm-hmm. I mean, where did, were you, uh, did you just go on YouTube one day or, or was this, did you have someone in the background kind of showing you the ropes? <laughs> That's a good question too. Yeah. It, the way it started definitely was just a block of steel and a handle on it. 
And mm-hmm. over time I started progressing and I'd have knives snap on me or get dull really fast. And so I started doing research on it. And to be honest, a lot of it was just YouTube or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, old books, um, blade forums where people were talking about it. And then even just yep. reaching out to old knife makers who were happy to help and asking questions. Um, yeah. To the point now where it's like, I know exactly what elements are in the steel and it's easier to predict what exactly is going to happen when you get it super hot. Really? Yeah. That's pretty wild. So, you know, let's go back to a fillet knife. What, what is it that makes that like, that makes that bend mm-hmm. and, and why would you want that? I mean, obviously it's a lot easier to fillet a fish when you got that bend in it, but, but then there's, you know, something like a, like a gut hook knife, which is, you know, completely different from a fillet knife. So are you literally, are you saying that some of the steel is that you're going to use for a fillet knife, you would never put into, you know, like a gut hook knife mm-hmm. or, or, or something like that? Yeah, definitely. Cause the, the steel that I use for a fillet knife typically is like CPM 154 or something, which is a mm-hmm. super tight grain, super steel. And it's something okay. where if I were to put it into a big chopper knife, it would likely snap. Um, the minute I hmm. put something just cause it's so hard. Um, and the reason it can bend so much is less because it's so hard more because the edge, ge- edge geometry, um, just thinning out that blade until it's just like a fraction of a millimeter thick, um, but still super hard right. and gives it that flexibility. Really? See, I would almost think that you'd want, you'd, oh, you'd want the hardest steel no matter <laughs> what, you know? Yeah. But there is a there's a careful balance here mm-hmm. then where it's you, you want a soft steel for one application mm-hmm. or a softer because steel is never really soft and then a, a harder steel for another application. Mm-hmm. Am I am I kind of following that? Yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. And there's a definitely a big difference between steel toughness and steel hardness. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, OK. Yeah. And All right. How it can take certain impacts. Sometimes you intentionally want it to be softer just because a you can fix a dull knife, but you can't fix a snap knife. Um, right. So you, like yeah, you want something that can absorb. You should have that on a shirt or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'd be pretty funny. Yeah, uh, but you really want something that can absorb certain impacts if you're going big. And if you're going small mm-hmm. like sushi knives, you can really crank up the hardness on it and sacrifice some of that toughness. And that's why right. the, the design process and the application is essential is You've got to mm-hmm. plan out exactly what blows the knife is going to take, where it's going to be used, what function, everything, so that you can predict um, how it's going to react. Right. So when you sit down and you say, hey, I want to make a custom, I don't know, fillet knife, mm-hmm. right? But maybe it's for, you know, let's say, uh, you know, uh, a tuna, you know, for, for tuna. Right. Mm-hmm. So obviously the meat is a little bit, t- is a little bit softer, but the skin is kind of tough. Like mm-hmm. are you, are there different applications for that particular fillet knife? Like you're not going to make all fillet knives the same way or are you, or like, is there like a, sim- a standard that you follow or better yet? I guess, let me rephrase that and say, when you go ahead and design a knife, right. Are you sitting down drawing this out and saying, I want to use this kind of steel with this type of, you know, hardness and X, Y, Z to then come up with your, your said knife, or are you kind of just going with the flow and be like, I got this designs. Let's see, you know, which steel is going to work the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's a good question. It's kind of a mix of the two. Um, I definitely consider the application first and then start looking mm-hmm. at the steel but there are times when it's kind of fun to just kind of go off the rails and start with just something raw and organic and kind of let it become what it wants to be. Um, yeah. With the sushi knives and fillet knives, it's helpful too to not just recreate the wheel, but to look at like some of the Japanese sushi knife designs um, mm-hmm. and kind of see what has worked for generations and then try and mimic that. Now, is there, is there one particular knife that you really enjoy making over and over? Yeah, I really like to make uh, Yanagabas, which are the okay. Japanese traditional sushi knives. Um, okay. They're just these long, elegant knives that you can super harden um, mm-hmm. as much as you want because you're never going to chop with it. It's just for slicing thin little pieces of fish. 
And uh, you can really hone in on the edge geometry. And what seems like a simple knife at the start um, really has layers of complexity that you can huh. have some fun with. That's really, I mean, and does this knife, I mean, the, the Japanese have really, have always been known for their, their blades, right? Yeah. I think everyone can agree with like a samurai sword, right? Yeah. Everyone knows what that is, you know? And it seems to me like they have a very strong culture of, um, of knife making. Has that always been something like the, that culture of you kind of always look to that as a, as a way of like maybe inspiration? Definitely. Yeah. Um, in a lot of Asian cultures, not just knife making, but in all forms of art, they take a really different approach than we do. Mm -hmm. Um, they really make things that are not disposable, you know, to, Mm -hmm. they make stuff that's going to outlive them. And that's why you see so many ancient Japanese knives and relics. It's just because they are built, um, to withstand the test of time. And it seems like now we kind of have a different approach where, a knife gets stolen, so you buy a new one. And I don't think that's the right way to go. Yeah. Now, when you go about building these knives, you got you to gotta say to yourself, like, you're in a whole different category. Like, you're in the custom knife making. And I actually interviewed a guy, um, Jonathan McKenzie, who owns McKenzie Knife Co. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're in Texas. He actually is a creator of another company called Turtle Box. So come to find out, yeah, I didn't know that until, um, you know, I had him on the show about Turtle Box and I found out that he was a knife maker and I checked his knives out. Beautiful knives. Um, No spear, no spear guns, (laughs) but just knives. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Japanese seem to have a very similar take on what we discussed about earlier, which is respect, Mm -hmm. you know. It, it throughout their culture it, it's been known that they're just they're very respectful loyal people that you know want to see things last a very long time but you know in the in the united states it seems to me like you know companies like um uh mench Bade, maybe we could say that right <laughs> or uh or what's another one uh you know uh gerber mm-hmm. let's see um I don't know what's another Spiderco, yeah, right? Spider-Co, all these are not all these knives companies um, are great companies. You know, they they have longstanding history. I have a Benchmade knife, um, so they're great, but they do kind of have that disposable feel to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a it's not a piece of art. It's not this thing that you're going to hand down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be pretty wild that to think that your knives are going to be handed down yeah. from generation to generation. Like they're going to outlive you. Yeah. You know, that's the goal. So, yeah, exactly. And it should be. And that's that's kind of the uh, I heard another good quote. I'm going to hit you in another quote. It's, uh, you know, your dreams. And I'm going to butcher it, butcher <laughs> it again. <laughs> it's like you're, you, if your dreams aren't outliving you, then you got to dream bigger. Yeah, right. That's true. And it it. It's corny, right? <laughs> we can agree with that. It's corny as hell, but it's true, you know? Mm-hmm. And that really applies to your knife making, right? And your spear gun making. Um what what do you like what do you say to that in terms of, well, why buy a Pelagos when I can just go get a, a bench made for a couple hundred bucks? Mm-hmm. You know? Like what there's there's a totally different mindset in in a different person when it comes to buying a Gerber or buying a Pelagos or some other custom knife, right? Yeah, that's true. And there are some sacrifices that you will make with handmade knives. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to buy a handmade knife, you are risking the imperfections of it. You know, you know, with those big mass produced knife companies that they, they'll do what they say they're going to do. They're all computer made, which is fine. But it seems like with handmade knives, they really have a soul to them and Mm -hmm. kind of a personality. And the imperfections are kind of the beauty of it. You can learn to appreciate that more. And uh, just knowing, too, that it was, it was labored over for hours for a specific yeah. purpose, I really do think it makes you appreciate it a lot more. And so it's, Absolutely. it's difficult com- to compete with like big companies who just mass produce stuff. Same with the spear guns, because mm-hmm. in the end, those will perform better more regularly um you know you can't beat a computer really but the 
spot where the custom knives and spear guns shine is just that they have a story and that they're mm-hmm. made to last, not made to serve a purpose and then be thrown away. Right. Yeah. Then very well said. And the, I think that kind of goes for, for anything that's handmade. Yeah. Right. Or anything that's been, you know, labored, you know, has a labor of love behind it and in the story behind it. And that's kind of the, the, the premise behind the podcast is like, there's these great companies, but there's also a story that goes with it. Like there is, you know, Bryn makes knives, but let's learn about Bryn, you know, and, and, and how that works. Right. So, you know, having this soul and going back to like the respect of the hunt and the process of the hunt, I really think there's something to be said about having a handmade product Mm. and not only that, but it's being handmade, you know, by, by someone who, is out there, you know, spearfishing, hunting. Mm-hmm. He he is an outdoorsman, <laughs> right? And I know I looked on your site a little bit and, and I dabbled around and you also make some other products as well. I saw this really cool thermos, yeah. um, like leather thermos. So do you do a little bit of leather making as well? I do, mostly just sheaths and stuff for the knives, but occasionally I'll do something yep. fun like that thermos. Um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of the spot I'm at now is I don't want to, put a label on exactly what I make. Um, right. Cause there's a lot of different avenues more. I just want to hone in my skill and mm-hmm. try and master any art that I pick up. Right. And, and, and that's a great transition into like, what's the next step for mm-hmm. Pelagos? Yeah. And by the way, the, the logo and the branding I think is awesome. I love the name. Thank you. <laughs> it rings. Yeah, it's really, it's really good. And, um, like, do you see yourself becoming less of just, you know, making knives and spear guns and kind of like this, you know, boutique craftsman who is just kind of, you know, maybe making whatever, whatever he feels like, but with the, the sole purpose of like this outdoor mm-hmm. kind of rugged, gritty company or brand or, or however you want to mm-hmm. say it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think when I started, my mindset was kind of like, let me make a quick buck so I can keep doing this. Um, yeah. Whereas where I'm at now is I'm not really concerned about making money off it. I'm more concerned mm-hmm. about just continuing my skill and learning as much as I can. Yeah. And so where I'd like to go is not making a big batch of spear guns and trying to ship them out all over the country. I'd rather just spend a couple months on one at a time, same with the knives, mm-hmm. um, and kind of be able to choose what I want to do and just make a masterpiece and then yeah. put it up for sale if I want to and have people come to me for it rather than yeah. me trying to build myself around what the market wants. Yeah. Love that. Well, there's something to be said about authenticity mm-hmm. and that right there is the most authentic path you can take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're building stuff and you're like, I'm going to make this mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't care who likes it, but if they like it, they can have it if they want. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a, that's a cool yeah. viewpoint. That's really where I want to go. Um, just cause, um, I really only need the money to keep doing it. I'm not trying to right. make a bunch off this really if I can just pay for gas and more steel, I'll be happy. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So obviously like you're, you're going to, um, you're graduating, right? What's the, are you going to be continuing knife making after this and then going, are you going to school? Cause I remember last we spoke, mm-hmm. you were going to a, um, a school that was kind of revolving around your interests in craftsmanship and, and building in the environment, in the outdoors. Is that still on the table? Yeah. So I think since we last talked, um, I've committed to going to Colorado school of mines. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm going to move next August and I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. there's a chance I could hit a little lull for a while or I have to take a break and kind of focus on school. But what I'm hoping is to just fully invest in this vision I have more mm-hmm. where it's just doing one thing at a time in my own time, but I can make it so much better. And yeah, there's a good chance too. Once I get up there, I'll have access to more industrial tools and mm-hmm. more like-minded people too, who are willing to help or inspire me. Yeah. So, now it's, yeah. it's an awesome place to be in and, 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 
and to be surrounded by people that are kind of in the same mindset is just, it's super powerful. I mean, I know that, you know, for me going to the gym and being around my, my barbell team and, and being around people that love the ocean, you know, when I go to work and it's inspiring, right? Cause we're all there for one purpose and that purpose is to become better and grow. Right. Um, but, and with that comes challenges, you know, and, and the challenges of you moving and trying to figure out, well, how am I going to keep this thing alive and how is this going to work and whatnot? Have you, you know, kind of found yourself with any challenges thus far that have really been like, oh man, I want to wave the white flag on this knife making <laughs> thing. I'm kind of tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There will be times when I'm slammed with school and there's so much going on and it seems like the only stuff I have to do is hand sand which is mm-hmm. every knife maker's worst enemy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there, a lot of it's really unpleasant. Um, mm-hmm. In Oklahoma, being out there covered in seal dust, just dripping in sweat. And um, yeah. there's a lot that I don't like about it, but it seems like every time I go back and start again, um, I, I enjoy the challenge of it. And I'm looking forward to really embracing that more. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got to imagine there's been a few people kind of in the background for you mm-hmm. that have always been cheering you on to some extent or really just, you know, on the days where you're covered in steel dust, sweating your ass off. Yeah. You're like, oh, man, I'm done. They're like, no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Like, this is going to be a really cool knife. And then all of a sudden you're presented with something that's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Have, has there been that one or two people that have just kind of, you know, stuck with you and, and, and been there since the beginning? Definitely. Um, the main one is my business partner, Blake Dieterlin. He handles mm-hmm. all the financials of the business and all the customer interactions and stuff so that I can just focus in on the knives. Um, yeah. and I know that I can always call him and just kind of unload what's on my mind. <laughs> often. Um, you gotta have that friend, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I, I'm very appreciative for that. And then, um, it seems like more and more there's people who want to, come and support me and help me out. And, uh, I'm just so thankful for people like that. Yeah, people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, And you got, well, you got something good going, you know, and when you see that other people are coming and being like, Hey, this is, this is something that's pretty cool and you should keep going. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're just showing interest in supporting you by, but buying a knife Mm -hmm. or just, you know, showing your Instagram off. Like Mm -hmm. that's really cool. It's really cool to see. And, uh, you know, it's something that not everyone does, right? Not everyone is willing to, you know, take the, take the path less traveled Mm -hmm. and go about creating something that's bigger than them. So props to you, man. That's really cool. Thank you. It, yeah, it's finally starting to pay off where it feels good to be an individual doing this. Um, Mm -hmm. for a while I kind of struggled with it because it was tough starting out, especially in high school. Um, mm-hmm. but now it's kind of become an identity. Right. Yeah. And what do you think that identity is, you know, starting to become for you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, being in high school, that's a weird, <laughs> it's just a weird time. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and you seem like a very level headed and mature kind of guy. So for you, it's, it's more of like just doing your thing. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting. But for a lot of people, it's just like they're, it's just time to mess around, mm-hmm. you know, whereas Bryn is getting work done. <laughs> Bryn's, Bryn's hustling over there yeah. <laughs> in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's super cool, man. It, it's super cool to be seeing you do that. And, you know, I'm always impressed every time I see a picture of the, one of the knives coming up on my feed, I'm like, man, that thing is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Super cool. I saw this one that I was really impressive. It was like, a, um, it was like a big blade, but it had these like J's in it on the back of the spine. Oh, or do you remember? I don't, was I, it like a black knife with the brown handle? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I called that one yeah. the Dragon Slayer blade. The Dragon Slayer. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looked like a Dragon Slayer. Yeah. I will say. Was that like a one-off, just like messing around? Yeah, it was actually a gift for the guy that made um, my logo and all the intro and stuff. Oh, really? And I told him oh, there you go. him and a knife and just if he let me kind of be creative with it. Um, wow. And so I just got to kind of, for once, do something that wasn't really functional, but was more just yeah. an enjoyment to make. 
Yeah. No, I can imagine. I mean, I don't know what you'd use that knife for, but yeah. it, it looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Brent, hey, man, it's uh, it's been a pleasure being able to chat with you and, uh, you know, learn more about Pelagos and what you got going on. And then, uh, yeah, just hear about, you know, the future of, of what you got, you know, going on for the future. So, yeah, likewise. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. And I can't wait to see what Absolutely. happens with the podcast. Yeah, well, we're trying. We're trying. We're, we got some. Uh, we got some good traction now. So I'm excited to see. And you know, 2021 will be a uh, another year to uh, to see what we're made of. So yeah, that's yeah, phenomenal. Awesome. All right, man. Well, we will talk to you soon. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of Along the Keel. It was a real pleasure having Bryn on. Uh, I can't tell you how impressed. I am to have had, you know, a guy who's who's a bit younger, right, on the show and doing something pretty incredible. He's cultivated a great following. And these knives, uh, if you check them out, you, well, first off, you have to go check them out. They're incredible. They're beautiful pieces of art that are usable. They're functional. And the story behind it is pretty phenomenal. Brind is a very detailed guy. He does not take a challenge lightly, and I can tell that just by the way he talks and, and how he talks about his knives that he really takes it to heart. So with that, Bryn, I salute you. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a fantastic job. I'm so stoked to see what you have in store for the future and uh, in, in, in store for Pelagos. So with that, thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of the show. I hope you tune in next week where we have Benny and Matthias from Gottbag, a German company that has figured out a way to create ocean plastics into a backpack. That is right. You can wear a backpack made out of ocean plastics and remove plastic from the ocean. It sounds like a win-win for me. These guys are working with guys like... These guys have worked with companies such as Sea Shepherd, um, as well as a bunch of other companies that are doing something similar in helping fight the fight against plastic pollution. Hope you guys stick around for that episode. It's going to be great. And before I go, remember to like, share, and subscribe to the show. It's super important if you leave a review. Also, check us out on social media and sign up for our newsletter. I can't tell you how many cool things we have going on in 2021, and they're going to be coming out very soon. We have a new website that's going to be launching. We might have some gear coming out, maybe some merch. Who knows? But if you stick around, if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be the first in the know. And I highly suggest it. Great content, great stories coming your way. Stuff that's not on the podcast will come right to your inbox. None of the bullshit, all the good stuff. So with that, I'm going to leave you with this. Work hard, do good, be incredible, and have a great day.